You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. I don't know who all has taught in this school the past 11 weeks, but I'm going to guess I'm probably the oldest teacher uh, you've had. No? Dan Lewis? I don't know. Dan Lewis is close to my age, I think. Now, how old is he? He's in his 70s. Oh, is he? Well, he's a little older. I'm, I, I'm 69. Okay. But when I started teaching for Youth with a Mission, I was actually an actual youth. Uh, <laughs> I started teaching when I was 29, so it's been 40 years I've been teaching in Youth with a Mission, though I've never been part of Youth with a Mission. I... I've been teaching the Bible for 52 years, and uh, I started in high school when I was 16. I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, I came to Christ as a youth. Uh, from junior high onward, I knew I was going to be in the ministry, but I didn't know what kind. I was in Southern California where I grew up, and the Jesus movement started when I was 16 in the very county I was living in, in Orange County, and therefore... I had the advantage of going to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, which was the hub of the international Jesus movement. And, uh, and I ministered in that environment for, for, for many years. There, uh, there were a lot of people being converted, young people, usually hippies, but not everyone was hippies, but the, the movement was kind of recognized as kind of the Jesus freak movement because all these hippie types were getting converted. Thank you very much. Um, I was not a hippie type. I, I became one after I got in the ministry. <laughs> I was a very conservative Baptist uh, youth group uh, guy. And, uh, but every, everyone in the, in the Jesus movement appeared to have drug backgrounds and you know, hippie backgrounds and stuff. So for the sake of credibility, I just grew my hair out and, and uh, made people assume that I had taken drugs. I never did. I hoped they would never ask because it, you know, everyone had these great, fantastic drug ammonies, we called them, you know, they, how many times they, how strung out they were on heroin or LSD, and then they got saved and delivered, and I, and I didn't have any uh, spectacular sins in my past. Uh, when I got married the first time, I was a virgin, and uh, I say the first time because I've been through some shipwreck, marriage shipwrecks, uh, not, not by my decision, um, but uh, I've got a, a colorful past. I, in high school, the Jesus people were meeting together at lunchtime every day to talk about the Bible. I, I was not a Bible teacher. Not in my opinion, I wasn't a Bible teacher. I was just a kid. But I had read the Bible a lot. Not the whole thing, but I'd heard the Bible all my life. And, and these kids were all brand new converts, and they asked if I'd start teaching the Bible to them at lunchtime. And I did not, I, I was not, in my own opinion, uh, capable of teaching, but uh, but I did know more than they did, and so we began having Bible studies every day at lunchtime, about 30 of them and I. And uh, that was my senior year. I did that every day. And uh, during that time, uh, other ministries uh, who were looking for people who could teach young converts uh, got in touch with me. So we got, when I got out of high school, I was invited to teach a lot of different places. Uh, this was before there was YWAM. But... Uh, I taught for about 12 years, I guess, before I ever taught for YWAM. Though I did go to Germany when I was 19, and I encountered YWAM over there. I, it was during the Olympics in 1972 in Munich, and I was there because a, uh, a, a German 
Baptist youth group had invited me to come over and teach, and I was over there for several weeks, and the Olympics were in Munich at that time, so I went down there to hand out tracts and do some evangelism in Munich and uh, ran into YWAMers on the street. Never had heard of them, of course, 1972. They hadn't, they hadn't been heard of much, but they had a castle there, and, and uh, I went and stayed with them. They had about 1,000 kids in a castle, um, and uh, you know, a lot of the YWAM speakers, the early YWAM speakers were all speaking there. I got to hear a bunch of them. Uh, and then I went home to California from there and didn't hear much more about YWAM again for several years. But in 1982, a friend of mine uh, went into YWAM, and I was teaching in Santa Cruz, California, and so was he. He was in my church, and he went over to YWAM and eventually became a leader in the Honolulu base and asked if I would... Well, this, how it happened is that a guy named Tom Hallis, who's the YWAM director in Australia, asked Danny Lehman, my friend, if he knew anyone who could come and teach in the public schools in Australia on creationism, creation versus evolution. And that was one of the things I had talked about a number of times, and so Danny recommended me, and I was invited to go speak in YWAM. Not for YWAM schools, but uh, over, over in Australia, uh, an outreach to public schools that YWAM was organizing. And so that was, uh, and when Danny heard I was coming to Australia, they said, well, your plane will stop, and he said, your plane will stop in Honolulu, why don't you teach our DTS? So I taught there, got to, to Australia, and they had me, when, since I had taught a DTS in Honolulu, they had me teach DTSs there. The next year I was invited to like eight different DTSs in Australia and, and, and New Zealand, and soon I was teaching uh, three times a year in Honolulu and a couple times a year in Kona, and uh, you know, going to Hawaii a lot, plus over the past 40 years, a lot of other countries, but I never got into YWAM. I mean, I, I, I ran a school that was not a YWAM school in Oregon for 16 years, where we went through the whole Bible in nine months, which might sound a lot like an SBS. And I do teach SBSs all over the world too, but, and DBSs, but my school was not a, a D, an SBS style. It was just me lecturing verse by verse through the whole Bible to students in a nine month time. And uh, did that for 16 years and uh, got kind of burned out on it, to tell you the truth. But by the end of that time, I was still, I was still traveling for YWAM and running my school in Oregon. And, uh, and then I started my radio show 25 years ago. And uh, for 25 years, I've been on the air. Uh, started out on one station, and then two, and then four. And now we're on about, I think we're on about 78 stations across the country. Uh, we buy the time on radio stations. It costs us over $100,000 a month. All that comes in from donations, and we don't fundraise. Is it over 100000 a month, dollars. That's what we pay radio stations. So it got, it's gotten to be an expensive ministry, but, but I don't, we don't have any fundraising. Uh, I, I don't, frankly, believe in fundraising. I've been living like George Mueller for 50-something years, meaning I don't let people know if I have needs. And I've never, never charged or you know, required anything for the ministry. And... God has taken care of me. I've raised five children, all of them are adults now, of course. Uh, and I mentioned I'd had some tragic history in my marriage. My, uh, my uh, website is thenarrowpath.com. Among other things, my bio is there. But I got married when I was 19. My wife went to Germany with me. Uh, we got pregnant over there. I have a baby who's 49 years old now. And uh, when we came back to the States, my wife backslid and ran off with someone else, and I, I was a single dad for six years. I married a second time, a wonderful Christian girl, and she was killed in an accident six uh, months later. So we didn't have any kids together, but my daughter was seven then. And, um, and then I married again, and I uh, was married for 20 years, have four children from that one, and that, that wife was a YWAMer. She actually had been through a DTS before I knew her. But she, uh, she was a devoted mom for 20 years, and then she just kind of, something happened. There was a, unfortunately, there was a history of mental illness in her family, not her, but her, some of her relatives. And, and something happened, and she just kind of flipped out and left the kids, left the family. She'd been a homeschooling mom for 20 years and just wanted to change her life, and she left the faith. And uh, so I was single for 10 years, raising those four kids uh, until they were adults. And then I met my present wife a little, like 12 years ago, and we've been married for 10 years. So I've uh, been married far more times than a person should ever be married, but I've never believed in divorce. <laughs> that, it doesn't help if you marry people who apparently do believe in divorce. So 
It only takes one to do that. So it's a pretty colorful past, obviously. And I've been doing the radio show every day for um, uh, 25 years. And it's streamed on the internet. We have an app, thenarrowpath.com for the iPhone. If you want to get the app, you can hear the radio show. You can call into the show from the app or just from your phone anyway. Um, and we've changed the schedule for classes this week because, well, because of the radio show. It's a live show. And people call in with questions about the Bible or about Christianity or to disagree with me. That's what I invite them to do. Most of the callers are, in fact, friendly. Most of them are Christians. But we have some atheists who like to call fairly regularly, and we've had others, a Buddhist who's been calling for years. Uh, but we have, um, it's an interesting show most of the time. Some of the calls are dumb, but, but a lot of, most of the calls are pretty interesting. And so uh, I have to, what I have to do is I have to close the class like 10 minutes before 5 so that I can go over to the other building and do the show at 5. And it's an hour long. You can hear it if you, if you download the app, or you can call in, like Jason said, but um, that's where I'll be during that hour. So anyway, that's my background and my foreground. I'm going to be doing it at 5 o'clock today. Now, I have taught every, just about every week of the DBSs um, somewhere or another. I think there's a few I haven't done, but I have taught all the books of the Bible verse by verse dozens of times because of my running the school and teaching other places too. I've been teaching SBSs for, you know, 30-something years and uh, taught most of the books of the Bible for them numerous times too. So um, John's, this is John week and, the, and it's your last week, so it's exciting. And I, uh, I'm determined to, that it should be your, your best week of the school. It's good for you to leave the school on a high point. Not that I know anything about the teachers you've heard. Uh, I'm sure they were great. All I'm saying is that these are, this is good material. And, um, and of course, everyone looks forward to Revelation, and that'll be this week, too. So I think uh, we can end this with a bang. Now, there are six books that are, uh, I'm sorry, five books that are attributed to John. One is, of course, the Gospel. It's called the Gospel of John. There's three epistles that are attributed to him. Then there's Revelation. So there's uh, four books, five books. I'm not, I don't count very well, do I? Yeah, three epistles. Uh, he's the only person who wrote three, uh, you know, general epistles. But how do we know John wrote it? Now, we just assume this many times, just because the Bible says, it says the gospel according to John right there on my Bible. Well, these books were written anonymously. With the exception of Revelation, these five books were written, four of the five were anonymous. And there are people who doubt that they were all written by the same person, especially Revelation is very different in Greek style than the other four books that are attributed to John. And that makes some people wonder. I don't wonder. I, I believe they're all by John. But there's always been some question about whether Revelation is written by the same author because of tremendously different style in the Greek. Uh, John's book, the, the, the Gospel and the Three Epistles, are all among the best, most competent Greek in the Bible. There's different qualities of Greek you know, style in the different writers. Paul, for example, doesn't write in a very literary Greek style. Uh, but John, John's Gospel and his three epistles are among the best, most literate, most uh, skilled Greek writing in the Bible. The only thing uh, else that's like it, or better even, would be uh, Hebrews and the book of Luke and Acts. Uh, but most of the books are not so much. Revelation, on the other hand, is like the worst Greek in the Bible. Many scholars have said it's the most illiterate writer in Greek that has written anything that's come down to us from ancient history, you know. So because of the vast difference in the quality of Greek in Revelation compared to the other books by John, there are many, there's always been people who've questioned, even from the fourth century onward, there's been people who've questioned whether John wrote the book of Revelation or, or whether it was the same author as these. I believe that all five of these books were written by the same author, and I'll explain why, and I'll treat the issues that some people have, have made some people wonder about that. But Revelation, of these five books, Revelation is the only one that contains the name John. Four times in Revelation, he, the author calls himself John. In the Gospel of John, he never names himself. In the epistles, uh, his three epistles are unlike most 
most epistles, the author names himself, but the, uh, the author of the three Johannine epistles, the word Johannine means you know, related to John, does not give a name. In 2nd and 3rd John, as we call them, the author only identifies himself as the elder. He calls himself the elder. Uh, in 1st John, the, the first epistle of John, he doesn't refer to himself at all. So the gospel and the three epistles of John are all really anonymously written. Now that shouldn't concern us. All the gospels are anonymously written. We know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wrote those gospels because the early church knew it. After all, the writers of these gospels had to hand them to somebody, and the early church are the ones who received them from the writers. And so they knew who the writers were, obviously. These authors were well-known people to the early church. And so uh, from the earliest times, very early, uh, late in the first century even, the, tr the traditions handed down from the church fathers are that Matthew wrote the first gospel, Mark the second one, Luke the third one, and Acts. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And then John wrote the fourth gospel. Now, there are always people who want to challenge the traditions. There's no good reason to challenge these particular traditions. They, they make very good sense. In fact, they make better sense than any other explanation. Uh, there are false gospels that were written in the second and third century that are supposed to be stories about Jesus and supposedly written by important people. There's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, there's the Gospel of Judas. Uh, these and other writings uh, were written in the second and third century, long after these, so, these alleged writers were dead. In other words, they are falsely attributed. The, the uh, authors of these Gospels claim to be somebody that they weren't. And they attached their names, the, the false names, because those names were important people. And they thought that that would give importance to their book if they claimed to be written by Peter or Thomas or Philip or one of the apostles or someone like that. Now, the interesting thing is the genuine Gospels, the authors don't bother claiming to be anyone. They were somebody. They didn't have to pretend. They're, the people who received the Gospels, the four Gospels from the, the writers, they knew who they were and they preserved the knowledge of who they were. They had every reason to preserve it. I mean, these are the most important documents that the early church had, and uh, they certainly would be very motivated to keep track of who it was that wrote them, and they wouldn't have to do that for very long before that was well-established and known throughout the whole church. And John, therefore, was universally recognized as the author of the uh, Gospel of John. But I need to uh, tell you that there are lots of scholars. I do not believe they are correct, and I'm going to tell you why I don't believe they're correct. But there are lots of scholars today who would say, you know, John didn't write any of these books. In fact, they'd actually say none of these books were written by the people whose names are on them. This is the trend of liberal scholarship. And liberal scholarship, uh, we might as well substitute the word liberal with the word skeptical. Scholarship. They're skeptical of everything traditional, everything that the church has believed they want to challenge. They usually try to assign late dates to these books and anonymous authors who only claim to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and so forth. Um, and, and this is something, I mean, I've been aware of these people since I began teaching young, and I've encountered their arguments because uh, you might say, well, I don't even care who wrote it. It's just the information that's in it that's important, right? Well, maybe. I mean, it depends. If you have the gospel according to Thomas, and you say, I don't care who wrote it, I'm just going to believe that that's what Jesus said. Well, the gospel of Thomas has a bunch of Gnostic heresy in it. In fact, those gospels written in the second and third century, those forgeries, are actually called Gnostic gospels. They're written by a heresy, people who adhered to a heresy called Gnosticism. But how can we decide if these gospels in the New Testament are really written by these men or somebody falsely attributed their authorship to make them more important than they were. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Such a theory would never work with Mark or Luke because Mark and Luke were men who were not very prominent in the early church. Mark is mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament, but not as one of the more important people. He was Barnabas's cousin. That's pretty much his claim to fame. 
Uh, there were certainly people a lot more important than him. If you want to falsely attribute the authorship of a book to someone important, you don't pick someone like Mark, because there's a lot people a lot more important you could pick. And Luke, he's one of the most obscure people in the whole Bible. He's not, his name's not even mentioned in the Bible, except in a couple of places where Paul is listing at the end of his epistles, so-and-so is with me, and so-and-so is with me, and so-and-so is with me, and list, you know, a list of people who are very obscure, and Luke's in those lists sometimes. Sometimes Luke is with Paul. But the idea that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts comes from the fact that he did. If, if, if he had not, there'd be nothing about him very important. And he, he was not the kind of person who held a lot of prestige uh, in the early church so that they would falsely say he wrote something when he didn't. They would have picked bigger names than that. Apostolic names, for example. See, Mark and Luke were not apostles even. Now, Matthew is, but I think they have pretty good evidence from the earliest days that Matthew wrote Matthew. And John has always been thought to be the, gospel, uh, the author of the fourth gospel, but I want to look at reasons why we can know that's true, even though some people uh, are skeptical of it. Because the reason it's important to know is because a false witness about Christ will lead you to false beliefs about Christ. If somebody in the second century produced a document like this and said Jesus did this and said this, you'd never know who they are. How do they know what they're talking about? But if it's John, well, he was the beloved disciple. He was the one who was with Jesus. He was one of the 12. Um, he was with Jesus more than anyone else. I say that because although Jesus traveled with all 12 apostles extensively, he had three that he was closer to than others. And you can see this in, in the Gospels that Matthew and Mark and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, they all mention that there were three men that Jesus was closer to than the, other, in the others in the apostolic group. And they were uh, Peter and James and John. James and John being brothers, the sons of Zebedee, and Peter, um, their partner as a fisherman before they became disciples, and his brother Andrew was, uh, came with him. But Peter and James and John were, usually scholars call them the, the inner circle, because they, they not only were with Jesus when he was with all the apostles, and were specially chosen to be among the apostles, but they also were with him when the other apostles weren't allowed to be there sometimes, like when Jesus went into the house of Jairus to heal his daughter, to raise her from the dead, he took Peter and James and John with him, but left the other apostles outside. When uh, Jesus uh, went on the Mount of Transfiguration, nine of the apostles stayed on the ground floor, and he went up with Peter, James, and John down up, uh, up on the mountain and saw Moses and Elijah. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took Peter and James and John into the garden to pray with him. You know, these three were clearly kind of like, I don't know if we should say favorites, but he was favoring them with more exposure to himself than, than anyone else had. And of those three, there was one who was called the disciple that Jesus loved. At least that's what the Gospel of John calls him. Now, we believe that this is a reference to John. And I'm going to show you why we know this, because that is something some people doubt. For example, some people think that the disciple that Jesus loved was Lazarus. It might seem like a strange theory, and I believe it is a strange theory, but the point is that the Gospel of John makes reference several times, I think five times, to somebody called the disciple whom Jesus loved. The first time this phrase occurs is in chapter 13 in verse 23, which is in the upper room at the Last Supper. And the disciple that Jesus loved was sitting nearest to him uh, at the table. But prior to that, there was no mention of the disciple that Jesus loved. But in John 11, two chapters earlier, when Lazarus was sick, the Bible says, now uh, his sisters came and told Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick, implying, please come and heal him. And so some say, oh, Lazarus is the disciple that Jesus loved. He's referred to as the, the one that you love. And so there are some who think that Lazarus is the disciple that Jesus loved. But there's no good reason to believe that. The truth is that in the same passage in John 11, where it says that Jesus loved Lazarus, it says, and he loved Mary and Martha, his sisters too. He loved everybody, you know. 
I mean, in John 13, it says at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, and it says, and he, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved everyone. He even loved the rich young ruler who left him. It says in Mark's gospel, when he's talking to the rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Didn't sound like a very loving thing to say, but I guess that's why we have to be told he loved him. He said it because he loved him. It wasn't what the guy wanted to hear, but sometimes you have to speak the truth in love, even though it's not welcome news. But the point is to say that Jesus loved Lazarus, as it says in the 11th chapter of John, does not transform Lazarus into the one who is forever afterward in the book referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. Where we get our biggest clue is from the passages themselves, which mention him. If you look at the end of the book of John, we're going to start at the end, and then we'll go back and look at things earlier. We'll take a few days with the Gospel of John. But in, this is the very last story in the Gospel of John. It's by the Sea of Galilee. It's after Jesus has risen, and the disciples, seven of them, have gone fishing. It's uh, one of the two times in the Gospels where they don't catch anything until Jesus tells them what to do, and then they, they do the right thing, and they catch a big load of fish. After that happened, in verse 20, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Now, we're not told in John who that disciple is. That's what we're trying to determine from the references. I'm, we, we believe it's John, and I believe it is John, but, but that has not been stated to be true in the book itself. So we're trying to test that tradition. Is, is he really the one? And it says of him that he was following. Uh, and then it says in verse 24, this is the disciple, and it's referring in the context back to the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, the disciple that Jesus loved is therefore the one who bore witness and wrote the things in the book of John. Now, I don't think he wrote them in their final form because someone says, we know that his testimony is true. He apparently wrote an earlier draft and testified to these things. And uh, the tradition is that John spent his final years in the city of Ephesus as an old man there, and he died peacefully and was buried in Ephesus. But the elders of the church of Ephesus apparently uh, put together his written memoirs after he died, or, or maybe, maybe it was before he died, but it would appear that they have taken his writings, put them together into the present form, and they give their attestation. We know this guy tells the truth. This, you know, this disciple in Jesus loved, he's the one who wrote this down. He's the one who test, bore witness to this, and he, we, we can testify that he's telling the truth. So the source of the information in this book is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So who is that? Well, I think the biggest clue we have is, begins by looking at chapter 13, because in chapter 13, we have that term used for the first time in verse 23. But I'll read verse 21 and run up to it. John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now, apparently the disciple that Jesus loved was sitting between Jesus and Peter at the table. And everyone was curious, who are you talking about? Someone's going to betray you. Who is it? And Peter leans over to John, or to the disciple whom Jesus loved, and whispers, Ask Jesus who it is. So this disciple is closer to Jesus than Peter was. And, uh, and, and the disciple asks him, and Jesus said, well, the one that I hand this sop to. So John, the, I keep saying John, but the disciple that Jesus loved is the first one to know that Judas is the betrayer. In fact, he doesn't announce it to the group. Jesus just tells him. And uh, that's why when Judas left, no one suspected him. They thought he was going out to buy something for the poor or something. So, uh, so only John had been told, I should say, only this disciple. I say John because it is John, but that's begging the question. The question is, is John the disciple that Jesus loved? Because the disciple that Jesus loved, we already told. He wrote this. 
There's several other references to him, but he's one of the 12 because he's at the table in the, at the Last Supper. According to the other Gospels, the so-called synoptic Gospels, uh, Jesus was there with his 12. So the disciple is nearest Jesus at the table is the one who Jesus loved. Now that leaves 12 possibilities. Well, it's not Peter, because Peter spoke to the disciple who Jesus loved, so it, we, that leaves 11 possibilities. Well, it wasn't Judas, because this was written after Judas was dead. It also wasn't James, the son of Zebedee, because he died long before this book was written. He's the first apostle to be martyred, and that happened in Acts chapter 12. Herod, uh, the king, beheaded him. So the first apostle to, to be a martyr was James, the son of Zebedee. So we know that the disciple of Jesus loved can't be Peter, can't be Judas, can't be James, the son of Zebedee. That leaves, again, eight other possibilities. But we have to assume, since the author never mentions the name of the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is, he never mentions himself by name, then all the disciples that are mentioned by name are not him. Right? I mean, it's reasonable. And so in the Gospel of John, we do see that Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel are all mentioned in the first chapter of John by name. So we've got th three guys who are eliminated from being the author. There's, of course, uh, Judas Iscariot. We've already eliminated him. And there's another Judas who is simply referred to as not Iscariot. I'll tell you, after Jesus was crucified, if I was in the disciple group and my name was Judas, I'd say, not Iscariot. Call me not Iscariot. <laughs> and that's what John, John's gospel calls him, Judas, not Iscariot. Um, so, we, you know, we kind of bring it down to where there's maybe four possibilities left, including John. Now, those four possibilities would be, uh, what, he'd be, it'd be Matthew. Well, he wrote a different gospel. Um, uh, Philip, no, Philip's been mentioned. So there's, there's not really very many left. Thaddeus, maybe? I don't know. Uh, there aren't any significant... Uh, Simon the, the Zealot? Uh, no one has ever attached the names of those guys to this book. And therefore, we're limited down to, you know, four possibilities. And from the earliest days, John was the one who was assigned to it. So we're pretty, pretty clear on that. And there's more to support that. Because... Of the disciples, the one that was closest in companionship to Peter was John. We know this because the Synoptic Gospels tell us, uh, first of all, they were partners in uh, business before they became followers of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, Peter and John are hanging out together. They're going into the temple uh, uh, in Acts chapter 3 together. They get arrested together in Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter and John seem to be hanging out as special buds, you know, among the apostles. And we see in the book of John that when uh, Jesus, is, his tomb is found to be empty by the women. And Mary Magdalene takes the news to the apostles and says, you know, someone's taken the body. It says Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved got up together and ran to the tomb. The others stayed put, I guess, waited for them to bring back information. So it's Peter and, and this disciple. And we also find in the last chapter, as we we're reading, that uh, Peter and Jesus are having a conversation, and the disciple that Jesus loved is there. And uh, it would appear that Peter and this disciple were kind of joined in, a, in friendship in a special way, as they were in the Gospels, and as, as they were in the book of Acts, that would be John. So all the evidence is that the tradition makes the most sense in light of the evidence. So we have no problem believing that John wrote uh, the gospel. Now, about the epistles of John, uh, some say, well, uh, the second and third epistle of John, the author refers to himself as the elder. And they say, John the apostle would not call himself the elder, certainly. Well, why not? Well, because an elder was like a church leader in a local church, uh, much uh, less prestigious position in the church than an apostle, you'd think he'd call himself the apostle. Why do you call himself the elder? 
And so some would say, well, it's clear that the same author wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John. Why is that clear? Well, you read them. It's obvious. They, they have the same vocabulary, the same style, the same emphasis, everything about them. And the epistles allude back to things that were in the Gospel of John. I mean, there's, uh, there's no rational reason to think that somebody different wrote the Gospel of John than wrote those epistles. But would John call himself the elder? Well, why not? Paul referred to himself as Paul the elder when he's writing to Timothy. Um, Peter, writing to the elders of the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am also an elder. So the word elder can mean an old man. Or it can mean a, you know, a church official in a local church. They, they appointed elders to guide the churches in, in those days. So the word is presbyter in the Greek. The word presbyter means an old man. But it also is the term that is used for a church elder. So when the author calls himself the elder, you know, he might be calling himself the elder of a congregation, but more likely he's just, he's just an old man. The tradition is that John wrote these books when he was quite old. One tradition is that, in fact, a very, a very common one is that Revelation was written as late as 96 AD. Now, I, I would challenge that when we talk about Revelation. I, I don't believe it was written that late. But, but uh, many believe that Revelation was written almost at the end of the first century. And if so, John would have been almost 100 years old when he wrote it. Uh, so, but we have, other, we have reason to believe that Revelation was actually written earlier than John's gospel and probably his epistles. That might surprise you, but there are things that John mentions in his epistles that, I mean, his epistles and in the gospel, which are things that were revealed to him in the book of Revelation. For example, John alone, among biblical authors, only John ever uses the expression, uh, the word, as reference to Christ. In the gospel, in the beginning, was the Word. And in 1 John, chapter 1, he refers to Jesus as the Word of truth. Well, that Jesus is the Word of God was revealed to John in, John, in Revelation 19, when he saw a rider on a white horse, and it says his name was called the Word of God. It seems more likely, since no one else calls Jesus the Word in the entire Bible, just John does, that he got that information. We saw the vision of Jesus and his name was the Word of God. And then when he wrote his books, he incorporated that information. Oh, he's the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, more likely that than that John had come up with it as an original concept in writing the Gospel and the Epistles. And later, lo and behold, coincidentally, it was, you know, he saw Jesus by that same name. It's, uh, there's a number of reasons to believe that Revelation was perhaps written earlier than these other books of John. We're not going to take Revelation first, though. We're going to take them in the order they appear in the Bible. But there's very excellent reasons to believe that the books were written, even all of them, I think, before A.D. 70. Now, A.D. 70 is an important year because that's the year that the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and, uh, and nothing was left of it. And anything that would be written after that would be written in the context of no Judaism, no temple, no Jerusalem. Now, John's gospel could be seen as written after that, but it's been pointed out by scholars that the person who wrote the gospel of John knew the geography of Jerusalem very well and made references to structures and buildings and pools and things in Jerusalem that didn't exist after 70 AD. We know of them because archaeologists have dug them up. But, uh, but somebody living after 70 AD would not necessarily know that there were two Bethanies. John mentions two different Bethanies. One of them, in, uh, mentioned in John 1.28, is beyond Jordan. That is, uh, on the east side of Jordan. And the other Bethany is mentioned in chapter 12, verse uh, 1, which is the Bethany that is near Jerusalem on the west side of the Jordan. There's two Bethanies. Now, Someone had to be local to know that. That'd be a very confusing thing to say Bethany, if there were two Bethanies, and, and, and not designate which ones. But he, he, does, he does designate them. But 
that's, a, that's just a local, local familiarity that the author had. Um, also the location of Samaritan worship, that the Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim. That temple in Mount Gerizim was destroyed in 70 AD also by the Romans. And someone you know, living much afterwards in Ephesus writing this book would probably not know much about that obscure fact that the Samaritans worshiped on the temple of Mount Gerizim. Uh, Sychar, which is near Shechem, is the place where Jesus met the woman at the well. That city was destroyed in 70 AD also. And so there's a, a, lot of, a lot of things that the book talks about familiarly with, with which no one would be familiar if they hadn't been in Palestine prior to the destruction. Um, the, the Sheep Gate is mentioned in Chapter 5, the Pool of Bethesda, the five covered colonnades there in Chapter 5, verse 2. Those are structures that were destroyed in 70 AD, but, but he describes it in detail. Now, there's this pool, there's these five colonnades here, there's the Sheep Gate there. Well, none of those things existed after 70 AD, but we know of them now. They have been excavated now. But you see, the author definitely lived in Jerusalem, or I should say was familiar with Jerusalem uh, prior to its destruction. He also had a lot of detailed memory about some of the things in the stories. There's, there's a lot of personal touches in detail that indicates that the author was there, and he, he can give details that you wouldn't expect someone to know. For example, when Jesus had the water pots filled, which he turned into wine, the number of the pots and, their, and how much they held. He says there were six stone water pots, the kind that the Jews used for purification. They held about 20 or 30 gallons each. You know, if someone was making this up, they wouldn't say 20 or 30 gallons. They'd just, put a, they'd just assign some amount. Why? He's estimating. He, he wasn't quite sure what the amount was, but it was something in that neighborhood. Likewise, when, he's, uh, when the disciples were traveling across the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus came walking on the water to them in chapter 6, says, we had rowed across the sea about three or four miles. Again, it's the kind of way that someone who is really there would tell it. I'm not sure whether it was three or four. You know, we'd been rowing a long time, but it was about three or four miles. Where again, if this is fiction, if someone was making stuff up, they just assign some distance and, and, and state it. The kind of subtle ways in which he tells things. Uh, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. All four of the Gospels record that miracle. That's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. And yet only John says the, the five loaves, they were barley loaves. He just remembered they were barley loaves. They weren't just, it's not just, all the other Gospels just mentioned there were five loaves and, and two fishes, and John remembers the particular grain of the, of the loaves. Um, <coughs> when Mary broke the spike knot over Jesus' head, it says in chapter 12, verse 3, the author says, and the aroma filled the whole house. Now, that, that sounds like a very personal memory, you know? I mean, you could tell a story about someone doing this without mentioning that detail. Man, the whole house was full of the smell. That's not a, an important detail to the story. It's just a, a reminiscence of the author who happened to have witnessed it and was there and knew of it. Um, he mentions there were four soldiers four centurions at the, at the cross. Other Gospels mentioned there were soldiers there, but only John mentions how many were there. And he also, uh, the amount of the myrrh and the aloes that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea used to embalm Jesus, uh, their weight is given by John. He knew how, how, how much they weighed, about 100 pounds, actually, about a talent. So the author obviously has all, all the touches of somebody who was there. He knew the geography. He knew the details of the stories that he mentioned that were unimportant details. I mean, anyone making up a story would include important details. But details like how many gallons were in the pots or how exactly how many miles you'd rowed across the sea, uh, those are the kinds of things that, you know, unless someone's a very clever fictional writer, it would not bother to put in. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who is a very famous uh, English literature scholar, as well as a Christian apologist and philosopher. Um, he said, when he reads the Gospels, he said he, he can tell he's not reading fiction here. 
because realistic fiction is a form of writing that wasn't invented till modern times. In ancient times, they didn't write realistic fiction, and yet they wrote historical facts. And uh, he said he could tell just from his familiarity with languages and, and, and literature that they are not written the way fiction would be written, and, and he's quite right about that. Now, let me give you a few reasons, not valid reasons, but reasons nonetheless that, that liberal scholars would say, no, John didn't write this. They think it's ruled out. One of them is that they say John wasn't literate enough to write it. Well, it is true that the Bible says that John and Peter were not very literate. It specifically says that in Acts chapter 4, that the Sanhedrin looked upon them and said they, they were unschooled, unschooled men. Uh, and so how could he write such good Greek? Now, the book of Revelation is written in very poor Greek. Maybe John could have written that well. But who wrote this really good Greek? Well, that's not really a problem at all, because in biblical times, writers used what is called an amanuensis. That's a word you'll probably never use outside of biblical conversation. Uh, an amanuensis is simply a secretary, someone who took dictation. Most people didn't write their own documents, not because they couldn't write, but because they didn't even have writing materials. Not that they didn't exist, but they're expensive. I mean, if I want to write a document, of course, I don't even need paper anymore. I've got a computer. But back when I was growing up, you'd go to the stationery store and buy you know, a tablet of paper, and you'd write on the paper, get a ballpoint pen. Um, they didn't have that convenience back then. You had, to, you had to tan goat hide to get parchment. And then you had to, uh, pens had to be made by hand from feathers, and you had to make ink from squishing beetles and things like that. I mean, the average person just didn't walk around with writing materials on hand, but there were professionals who did. And they were amanuenses. So if you wanted to write a letter or a document, you'd hire them. Or in the church, there were probably people who volunteered to take dictation. But a writer then would just dictate. He wasn't writing, he was dictating. Paul did that. We know that because in the book of Romans, it's kind of funny when you're reading the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16, Paul is saying hello to so-and-so, hello to so-and-so, hello to so-and-so. He greets 20-something people by name. But there's a strange verse in there that says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, also greet you. And it's Paul sending greetings to all these people, and it's Paul. But then this other person says, I, Tertius. I'm writing this letter. He's the amanuensis. You know, it's like Paul took a bathroom break or something, and so Tertius said, I want to send my hello too. And it's clear that Paul wrote using Tertius when he wrote Romans. Uh, Peter, when he wrote 1 Peter, wrote through an amanuensis named Sylvanus. He mentions it at the end of his book. I, through Sylvanus, I've written this to you. Uh, so we don't know who the, who the amanuensis may be, been, but John almost certainly, not being very literate himself, probably dictated this stuff and someone wrote it down. So it would, we're looking at the style of their, ed, the level of their education in Greek, not his. So it's not a problem. He's still the author, as it were, just like Paul's the author of Romans. Then some say, well, a, a Galilean fisherman wouldn't be that familiar with the geography of Jerusalem as, as the author is. Well, why not? Every Jew went to Jerusalem three times a year for week-long festivals. I mean, from, from childhood, John and every other Galilean would have been in Jerusalem at least three weeks every year. And that you could become familiar with it from then. And, and even, even apart from that, once he was a disciple of Jesus, he went with Jesus to Jerusalem. And Jesus preached in Jerusalem a lot. So, I mean, the author obviously, you know, he'd be acquainted with uh, Jerusalem no matter where he was raised or what he, where he'd been before. He'd have made lots of visits there with Jesus or even before when he's just a Jew. Now, one thing is that in chapter 18, verses 15 and 16 of John, John 18, 15 and 16, it mentions that the disciple that Jesus loved was acquainted with the high priest's family. That's why he went into the high priest's house when Jesus was on trial. And Peter stayed outside and warmed himself outside and got himself in trouble. But John, or the disciple that Jesus loved, was acquainted with the high priest family. They say, well, if John was a Galilean fisherman, that's like a peasant, how would he be acquainted with, you know, the family of the high priest? 
It's kind of an aristocratic family. Well, we don't know how broad the high priest's family's acquaintances may have been. It doesn't say he knew the high priest. He knew the people in the family. How many people were in the high priest's family? Maybe a lot. How many people did they all know? Maybe a lot. One thing we know is that, and you may not have known this, but James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were first cousins of Jesus. That might surprise some of you. Their, their mother's name was Salome. And Salome was the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Which means that James and John, the sons of Salome, were the cousins of Jesus, the son of Mary. Because Salome and Mary were sisters. Now what that means is, they might have had some connections with the priesthood, just socially or family-wise. Mary had a cousin named Elizabeth, right? And Elizabeth was a priest's wife, Zacharias. They were cousins of Mary. And if they're cousins of Mary, they're also cousins of Salome. In other words, Mary's family, and therefore Salome's family, had some connections with priesthood through relatives. And who knows how many, how, how large that network went. John the Baptist, his parents were priests, and, they were, and he was a cousin of Jesus and of John and James. So uh, we, we can see that the priests, you know, they, they probably had a lot of friends and relatives besides other priests. And so there's no good argument here that a fisherman like John would not know the high priest family. They might have. Jesus might have. Uh, you don't have to be a priest to know the priest's family. Now, the other thing they bring up, and, and obviously there's not much against John being the author, but these are the things they've suggested, is that why would John call himself the disciple that Jesus loved? Well, we might ask, why would anyone call himself the disciples that Jesus loved? Doesn't sound very humble. You know, well, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Unless it's not a boast. After all, to say Jesus loves someone is saying more about Jesus than about the person, since Jesus loves people unconditionally. He loved the rich young ruler who refused his offer of discipleship. Why wouldn't he love all his disciples? He did. But it doesn't mean they're qualified. He apparently loved Judas too. Uh, so to say I'm a disciple that Jesus loved, might not be saying much about me, but more about Jesus. And it might even be saying, you know, I who am so unworthy. I mean, it'd be a, it's a remarkable thing that I am one that Jesus loved. But on the other hand, that Jesus loved can simply mean that he was close friends with. When it says that Jesus would love Lazarus and Mary and Martha, I think it just means they were close friends, affectionate with each other. And we know that the disciple that Jesus loved was close to Jesus, apparently even closer than Peter, because he sat nearer to Jesus at the table, and Peter had to ask John to, to ask Jesus who would betray. So there's, none of these objections really make any sense. Why would anyone say that these would prove that John is not the author? The reason is because liberals who are skeptical want to try to discredit the contents of the book. You'll sometimes hear people argue wrongfully, that we can't really trust the Gospels because they weren't written by eyewitnesses. Now, that's the liberal position. But there's not a thing in the world that would suggest that this, there's a basis for that. Now, now, Luke does not claim to be an eyewitness. Luke actually says that he got his information from other people, eyewitnesses and others. But uh, Matthew was certainly an eyewitness. John was an eyewitness. And uh, Mark was very probably an eyewitness of some of the things. He wasn't one of the 12, but he lived in Jerusalem and was connected to the community of disciples. His mother, for example, owned the house where probably where the Last Supper was held. Uh, so, you know, some people say, well, you can't trust the Gospels because they were written much later than the events, and, and the same things Jesus said and did weren't written down until long after they happened. So how can we trust that they got it right? This is something only a young person could say. Someone who thinks that if the Gospels were written 40 years after Jesus ascended, that no one could remember very accurately what he did or said, has simply not lived 40 years or more. 
my parents uh, lived into their 90s, and uh, they were married 70 years, and they could still tell how they met. They could still tell stories about conversations they'd had when they were dating. And I believe them. I believe it's probably very vivid to them. I'm almost 70. I can still remember some conversations I had when I was, uh, you know, preschool. You know, it, it, when you get old, you realize it's not that long. 40 years is not that long ago. Anything that was significant to you, you can remember. And anyone who spent time with Jesus, the things that Jesus said and did would be among the most significant and memorable things. I don't remember everything that happened 40 years ago, but the things I do remember are memorable, but not as memorable as if I'd seen Jesus walk on water or heard him give the Sermon on the Mount or, you know, seen him rise from the dead. I mean, the things that they recorded are things that if you were there, you wouldn't forget them easily. And there's no reason to believe that they are not entirely accurate. Now, I want to say a few things about the distinctives of John. And uh, because it's different than the other Gospels. It's so different, in fact, that again, the skeptical liberals will say, it can't be the same, same story as you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I've referred to Matthew, Mark, and Luke several times as the synoptics. I assume you know the term. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic because synoptic means to see together. And if you, as you've read those gospels, you realize there's a lot of similarity between them. You can kind of make a cohesive harmony of them to sort of see one picture of Jesus. There are different details in different ones, but most of the same stories. You know, when you've read through Matthew, and then you read Mark, you feel like most of this is familiar, you know? Most of what's in Mark is in Matthew, too. Then when you read, you've read both of them, you read Luke, you feel like, wow, I've been here before. You know, I know most of this stuff. And that's because these Gospels cover a lot of the same material. But when you get to John, it's like you're in a different world, almost like a different story. The main differences, for example, are that in John, Jesus talks about himself a lot who he is, he and his father, the relationship between him and his father. He doesn't talk about himself much in the synoptics. He talks more about the need to be humble and don't be a hypocrite and love your neighbor. And basically in the synoptics, his teaching is practical, usually short sayings and parables, um, such as maybe peasants on the hillside listening might be able to follow easily. When you get to John, you've got these long theological discourses. And... A lot of them are about him. If you don't believe in me, you're going to you know, die in your sins. He doesn't say much about believing in him in, in, the, in the recorded sayings of him in the first three Gospels. And, and so it's kind of different. The discourses are different. Very different in style and content in John than the others. Also, much of the stories in John are taking place in Jerusalem. Whereas the other Gospels focus almost entirely on Galilean ministry. So the things that Jesus did and said in the, in the three synoptic Gospels are mostly done in Galilee. Whereas most of, uh, you can see a lot more in Jerusalem in, in John's uh, Gospel. Um, and there aren't very many miracles in John. There's only one miracle in John that's in all the other Gospels. And that's the feeding of the 5,000. And there's not very many miracles, only seven altogether, besides the resurrection of Christ himself in the Gospel of John, where the other Gospels, you know, they, they have dozens of them. So, and there's no parables. <coughs> in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is always speaking in parables. It's his distinctive way of speaking. But in John, there's not a single parable. It's true, he does talk about, I'm the vine and I'm the good shepherd. But those aren't parables, those are metaphors. It's very different than the parables he told. So, and, and one of the main things he did in the Synoptic Gospels is cast out demons. There's not one exorcism in John. No, no occurrence of any exorcism, not very many miracles. Um, it's, it's quite different, no parables. And so some people say, well, whoever wrote John was writing a different story about a different person than the synoptics are about. And, uh, and yet that's not true. It's not true, and it's not sensible to argue for that. First of all, the reason the discourses are different in John 
is because he's dialoguing with the theologians. We know that even from the synoptics, Jesus was able to hold his own against the theologians. For example, when he was 12 years old, his parents found him in the temple discussing deep theological things and to, the, to the astonishment of the teachers and the rabbis uh, when he was 12 years old. That he could speak about deep subjects is very clearly attested to even in the synoptics, although most of the sayings of Jesus in the synoptics are simple sayings. But he's talking to peasants. He's talking to tradesmen. He's talking to fishermen. He's talking to people in Galilee who aren't Bible scholars. In John, he's mostly arguing with the scholars, with the rabbis, with the spiritual leaders. And that explains why he could change it up. I mean, again, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. But he also wrote the Space Trilogy, which is like science fiction. And then he wrote scholarly analyses of British or English literature. And he wrote Christian apologetics. And he wrote philosophical works. One man, if he's a brilliant guy, can write lots of different styles for different audiences. When Jesus was with the unscholarly peasants and speaking on the hillsides, he spoke simply. When he's talking to the scholars, he talks at their level. That's not a problem. We have, in other words, different audience of these different uh, speeches. That he spoke about himself more in John is simply because that's what he was challenged on in John. The scholars say, how dare you do these things? What authority do you have? Well, I'm, I'm my father's son. I can, I can clean his house out. You know, I can drive the money changers out. Uh, I have the authority my father gave me. And, and so when he was criticized for breaking the Sabbath, he said, well, because my father works every day, so I work every day. And then they got angry because he called God their father. And so there, there became these discussions about who he was um, where those things didn't come up that much in, uh, in the synoptics. So they did sometimes, just not as often. Um, the parables, you know, the parables were suited more for the crowds in, the, in Galilee, and, and that's not wasn't a teaching device Jesus used when he was talking about theology. Uh, the exorcisms are not mentioned because John, uh, John is not interested in recording a complete sampling of the miracles of Jesus as, as the synoptics do. And I'll tell you more about that after we come back from our break, because we have a break coming up here. But I'll talk about the miracles that he did in, uh, that are recorded in John. But um, there are, it's interesting that John doesn't have, uh, for example, some important things that the others have. He doesn't have, he doesn't record the baptism of Jesus. He records John's testimony about the baptism of Jesus after the fact. In John chapter one, we read that John testifies that he had seen the dove come down on Jesus when he was baptized. But he, it, we don't read of the baptism as a historical narrative. It's, it's like the report of John afterwards. The other Gospels all focus on the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. not mentioned in John. <clears throat> it's in all the other three. There's no birth stories in John as there are in Luke and Matthew. Uh, even, the, even the Last Supper is not recorded in John. It's in all three of the other synoptics. But in John, there's a lot of detail about the upper room, but it starts after the supper was over. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that was after the Last Supper. We don't have the institution of communion in John. He obviously assumes that his readers know about that. And I think what we can understand, or should understand, is that John wrote to supplement the other Gospels. By the time John wrote the Gospel of John, he was probably the last surviving apostle, and old. And those around him already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, records. But they knew that John had memories that had never made it into those Gospels. That the Gospels, you know, the Gospels are very selective. Only 39 actual days of Jesus' life are recorded. Now, they spread out over three and a half years. But in those three and a half years, there are 39 different days that are, you know, that we have record of things happening on those days. So there's an awful lot of time in Jesus' mystery that's not recorded. And much of it, John remembered as an old man. I think that the elders of Ephesus asked him, hey, before you die, we need you to tell us about those stories. 
And so he deliberately left out of his record the things that everyone already knew from the other Gospels and, and included things they didn't. For example, the Upper Room Discourse. He spends four chapters, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, talking about the conversation between Jesus and his disciples in the Upper Room. But he doesn't mention the Last Supper, which, which happened in the Upper Room. It's, it's, it's like he's deliberately skirting the subjects that have already been well covered and well documented and including the things that the others left out. And that's why we have mostly his ministry in Jerusalem recorded in John, because the other Gospels focused on his ministry in Galilee, and Jesus ministered both places. But his, his activities in Jerusalem were much less documented in the synoptics, and I think that's why he focused on it in his Gospel. There's, uh, I, I want to say something more about the miracles and the teachings of Jesus in John, 